Good morning, everyone. It's welcome to everyone joining us today. It's my privilege to be with you and my privilege to preach the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please go with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, because I want to start by reading verses 7 through 12 as the setting up for our discussion this morning. For those of you on your Bible apps, I'm reading from the New King James Version. This is what Jesus says. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who asks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts or give good things to those who ask Him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, church, the key verse in that passage is verse 12, and the key words are where, where it says, Therefore, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. The rest of the passages that we're going to cover today, including what we covered last week, comments and relates to that great truth. So just underline those words in your Bible where it says, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Some of the great biblical scholars of old have called verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7, the Mount Everest of ethics, or the Mount Everest of moral law. In other words, it is the highest point of ethics in that it is the supreme standard for all human interaction and relationships. It is also known by many as the golden rule for Christian living. Right? Some versions in the Bible, that verse will stand on its own and the heading will be the golden rule. It was Bishop J.C. Ryle who said, The golden rule settles a hundred difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. And one of the great Jewish scholars who became a Christian scholar, Alfred Edersheim, said of the golden rule in Matthew chapter 7 that it is the nearest approach to absolute love of which human nature is capable. So church, what we are covering today is so significant to understand if we are to have ethics that emulate the ethics and moral law of the kingdom of God. This is such an, a, a monumental portion of scripture that we're covering today. And let me ask you a quick question. What is another way of saying whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them? What scripture would you refer to? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's right. That is the law and the prophets. That is the sum of it all. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what Jesus is saying here is that you can sum up all biblical revelation 
You can sum up all divine data and you can boil it down to the reality and fulfillment of two things. Relationship with the Father and relationship with brothers and sisters. Now, this is consistent with the Old Testament summary of the law of God because firstly in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And secondly, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It says, I am the Lord. So consistently throughout the Old and New Testaments, God's law is for a right relationship to Him as a father and a right relationship to others. Love God, love people. Church, those are the prominent features of Christian truth. I was doing a a word study this week on the word righteousness. And church righteousness is the Greek word dikaiosine. And yes, righteousness means to be made right with God. And this can only come as a free gift from God when we commit our lives to Him. But church, it also means to be in right relationship with other people. Look at the Tyndale Bible Dictionary definition. Righteousness is the establishment of a right relationship primarily between God and people, secondarily between people themselves. Righteousness is the fulfillment of just expectations in any relationship, whether with God or other people. It is applicable at all levels of society and is relevant in every area of life. I don't know about you, but I never looked at righteousness in that way before. But as we've just read, the law and the prophets hang on those principles. Love God, love people. So church, with that in mind, what does it mean? Okay, I'm assuming everyone here today, or most of us here today, have been made right with God. Right? We've given our hearts to the Lord. If you haven't, you will have that opportunity at the end of the message today. But what I want to ask you is, what does it mean to be in right relationship with other people? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean to love correctly? If you are to love your neighbor as yourself, if you are to love the way that God wants you to love, like Pastor Renal said last week, if we are to be a church that is marked by love, and love is to guide all of our human interaction and activities, then firstly, we must realize that love does not criticize, it does not judge, condemn and damn people who don't come up to our standard based on their appearance and our experience. Remember, that's what we covered last week. But what I want to point out to you this morning, church, is that love is more than just not doing certain things. What do I mean by that? If somebody comes up to you and says, do you love me? And you say to them, well, I I never did anything bad to you, did I? That doesn't mean that you love them, right? You see, the absence of something doesn't consummate love. Love is not only not doing certain things, but it is also doing some other things that will fulfill the love and right standing of that relationship. Does that make sense? Let's look at verse, uh, verse 12 again. The golden rule says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, 
for this is the law and the prophets. And did you notice what it says there, church? It says, whatever. Not some, not a few, not many, not most, not almost, but whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Now, importantly, this truth is limited only to the Bible. Because human religions and human philosophies and human attitudes have tried to come up with, with something similar. They tried to come up with a negative type of golden rule, but they were never able to turn the corner to the positive. Let me explain what I mean. And if you are, for those of you that are studying philosophy at university at the moment, you will know what I'm talking about. Because if you study philosophy and various other kinds of teachings about other religions, you will note that there is a negative kind of golden rule. As an example, among the rabbinical traditions, one of the famous old Hebrew rabbis named Hillel had this negative principle. He said, what is hateful to yourself, do not to somebody else. In other words, don't do something to somebody else that you wouldn't want done to yourself. And that sounds good on the surface, but, but you see, it's a don't principle. It is a withholding principle. It is, it is actually a, a selfish principle. Who's heard of Confucius before? Confucius was a Chinese philosopher and sage, and he said, what you do not want done to yourself, don't do to others. Again, a, a negative principle. Among the ancient Greeks was a king named Nicocles, and he wrote, Do not do to others the things which, you make, which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. The Greek philosopher Epictetus said, What you avoid suffering yourself, do not afflict on others. And you see, in every case that I've just mentioned, the emphasis is negative. The principle may sound good when it comes to right human relations, but it falls far short of God's perfect standard. The whole world knows how not to do certain things. They just don't know how to do the right things. I mean, we can all withhold what is wrong, right? We can all withhold what, what is evil. So in a negative form, it's a very common principle, and you can find it in all different systems of philosophy and religion and ethics. But left alone as a negative, it's really a weak principle because it is basically a revelation of the selfishness of man. And church, I know we don't always like to hear these types of indictments on the very nature of who we are at the core, but because of our fallen nature, men and women at their core are selfish. Because only a person who is dominated totally by self can come up with principles about protecting themselves. You know what? It's like me getting mad at someone to the point where, they, where I want to punch them in the face. But because that person is so much bigger than me, I restrain myself. I don't restrain myself out of love. I restrain myself out of self-preservation. That's why you should never pick a fight with anyone bigger than you, right? I'm just kidding. Don't pick a fight with anybody, all right? <laughs> the point I'm making here, church, is that we all have the kind of a tendency to be self-seeking. And it's a type of self-preservation that knows nothing of selfless love. You see, selfless love is able to do and to do and to do again what it wishes were done to it, even if it knows it will never be repaid in the same way. 
And the reality here at church is that self-seeking and self-preservation and not doing certain things doesn't require any faith in God. Not being able to do things doesn't require any faith in God, but the positive ethic is utterly impossible without faith in Him. Right? To assume in your own heart that you would want the very best and do that for somebody else is beyond the realm of thinking of an unregenerate man or woman. That's why the Bible says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that men are despisers of those that are good and lovers of themselves. And church, here's the distinction between the negative and the positive. Here's the distinction between man's golden rule and, and God's golden rule. The negative ethic is compelled by fear and the positive ethic is compelled by love. Fear is common to man because he's dominated by self-preservation, but love comes only from God. Let me give you another example. You and I drive our cars very carefully, or at least some of the time. Well, I've seen how some of you drive, so I say most of us some of the time, right? But we do this, church, because we don't want to get fines or, or damage our cars, or even worse, drive over somebody. You could call them man's golden rules for driving. And we do that mostly out of fear because we don't want to break the law or, you know what, take someone else's life because if we did that, we would be in serious trouble and we would live with a guilty conscience. And obviously, we should be driving carefully and and looking out for others. But church, driving in your car and then picking up an elderly person who has their groceries, who needs to get somewhere, or stopping on the side of the road to help someone with a flat tire, that is something very different. That's doing something out of love instead of fear. The negative ethic is compelled by fear. The positive ethic is compelled by love. So if you and I look very carefully at this principle and we understand it, then it is a principle that is monumental in its meaning, in its reality, and if we put it into action it will be monumental in its impact. And as Christians, even though our fallen nature leans more to self-preservation, we as Christians should certainly not be categorized by that. We should be able to go beyond that and start throwing ourselves away for the benefit of others. We should be able to determine in our own hearts that we, what I really would want for me, I'm going to do it for somebody else. And I know this is completely and and utterly foreign to an unregenerate mind, but by the, the, the help and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we as Christians can go from self seeking to self sacrificing. If Jesus says, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, then what that means, church, is that we come to the place where we embody selfless love, that when I know that you have a need, I will do for you what I would want done to myself. And in fact, if it comes down to that, and I have to make a choice, I will choose to do it for you and I will sacrifice my own desires. Let me give you an example. If I know that you need, if I know that I need a new outfit, but I also know that you need a new outfit or a new suit because you are going to this very important interview because you haven't had a job for a couple of months, then I will get you that new outfit or new suit because I know that's what I would do for me and I will go without. 
Or as another example, if I know that, I'm, that you are going to go hungry tonight, I will fast and then I will give you my meal. That's the essence of this principle. Right? This is the royal law that James talks about. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the very same thing as whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And church, this is moving from selfishness to selflessness. This is moving from self-seeking to, to self-sacrificing. And you may be thinking, Pastor, you know what? That's just asking way, way too much of me. How can I give up what, you know, what I want and what I need for the benefit, benefit of others? Why would I want to do that and, and why should I do that? I mean, am I really called to sacrifice my wants and desires and, and to love to such a degree? And I guess the question is, church, to what degree do we actually take the scripture? To what degree do we actually sacrifice our own lives in this way? I was wrestling with these thoughts and questions this week, and at some point I was struck once again by the reality of the cross. And have you seen how the cross has come through, the message of the cross has come through in worship this morning? I was struck by the fact that Jesus loves you and me so much that he sacrificed himself on the cross. He denied himself any rights so that we would be made right with the Father. He denied himself so that we would receive the righteousness of Christ. At church, can you identify what is required to be in right, in right relationship? Sacrifice. And I was reminded about that scripture in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. In, ever, in, in other words, church, whoever wants to, to look to self-preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever sacrifices his life for my sake will find it. And you know, the reality of the scripture really hit me this week. Are we really willing to sacrifice our lives to find it in Christ? And church, do we think enough about the cross and the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us? And how would we behave towards others if that was front of mind all the time? Something I want you to ask yourself. I was reading a, a true story the other day about a man and a wife that went on a hike together. And they got caught in a, a terrible hailstorm. It was a, a massive hailstorm, and the hailstones were as, as large as these, like cricket balls. And under this, the, the sudden flood of hailstones, the man realized that if he didn't do something to protect his wife, his wife would be severely hurt. So he quickly draped himself over his wife, covering her with his own body, so that instead of the storm hitting her, it hit him. The hailstorm seemed to get bigger as the man bent over his wife, protecting her. The large stones came down harder and harder onto the man, and they started inflicting some serious damage to his body. After a couple of minutes, his ears started bleeding along with other spots on his head and parts of his body. The man tried to get his wife to safety, but the stones were coming down faster and harder. 
The pounding took its toll and weakened by the onslaught, the man finally collapsed over his wife, only able to shield her from the danger. After the storm was over, the man was left with scars where the hailstones had battered away at him. The remnants of sores, scars and cuts and abrasions would forever be reminders of, to him of the day that he saved his wife. On the local news station, the man's wife was asked how she felt about the experience, and she said, every time I look at that scar on his head, on his neck, and on his ear, I love him more. Every time I see the scar, I love him more because he sacrificed himself for me. Church, when you and I go to heaven, Jesus will be the only person in eternity with scars. He will have holes in his hands, holes in his feet, and, and, and a hole in his side. And he will be your eternal reminder that the only reason you are there is because he stood in between the wrath of God and the judgment headed your way. He covered you with his love and allowed none of the hell to damage you. He was disfigured for you. This is the love of Christ. And my question to each of us today is this. Do we think about the cross enough? Do we think about the love of Christ enough? And when we think about it, do we love Him more? And are we at least willing to model that type of behavior by letting go of the negative ethic of self-preservation and putting into practice the positive ethic of self-sacrifice and selfless love? It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are His dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered Himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. And you know, church, we think we are going to lose so much when we live in the way that Jesus calls us to live. But in reality, what we gain in return is worth so much more. We gain the fullness of life in Christ. You see, the more we let go of self, the more we gain of Him. And the more that we find ourselves. And again, by the help and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we as Christians can go from self-preservation, self self-seeking to self-sacrificing. On our own, I would say this is impossible. You see, our fallen nature will just not naturally go there. That's why Jesus says to us in verse 7 and 8, what does he say? If you can't do these things on your own, he says, ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, church, here's the heart of the matter. We can feel, feel free to give to others and to do for others and to sacrifice for others and to love others because we can be confident that in giving up what we have to someone else, we have an ultimate and eternal resource to re replenish our own needs. You see, the promise of God to you and me is that what we ask for and seek for and knock for will be given to us. Why? Because it frees us up to give anything and everything we have to the one that has the need. 
In other words, church, I can do unto others what I would want done to myself without fear of having nothing left, materially or other, because all I have to do is turn to my Heavenly Father in prayer who gives me bread for every day and takes care of me in every way. And I will never do without the things that I have need of. And church, isn't that such a far cry from the way that we live? And do we really believe that God can take care of us in that way? People say, you know what, I would love to invest in in this person's life or that person's life, whether it's financially or whether it's your your time and the, the, the skills that you have. I know that they have real desperate needs, but, but, but oh my goodness, what is going to happen to my life? Right? What's going to happen if I put myself out there? What am, I going to, what am I going to lose? But what does the Lord say? He says, ask and it will be given to you. Right? Now church, very importantly, what it is not, and as, as some people think, verse 7 is not a blank check. Some people think that it's just about asking the Lord and He's just going to open the bank of heaven and pour out whatever you need in every situation. People say, well, isn't that what verse 8 is confirming? Because it says, for everyone who asks, everyone, right, who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. They just block out that verse and say, this is what God says about all requests and all matters of life. But you see, church, there are some other conditions that that are tied to this. And I'm going to just cover this very quickly. Number one, this applies only to you if you are a child of God. Otherwise, you have no relationship to Him and His promises don't apply to you. Number two, you must be willing or must be living in obedience to Him. Or as Peter says, your prayers will be hindered. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Which means, church, when you're not keeping His commandments and you're not obeying, you're not receiving either. Number three, you need to have a totally selfless motive in asking. If you just ask to receive for yourself, then you ask in error. James chapter 4 verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And finally, number four, you have to submit it all to His will. 1 John chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And what is His will, church? That we love God and we love one another. And it says, if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Right? Did you see? That's that's not a blank check, right? That's asking under the right conditions when you're his child, when you're his obedient child, you're his unselfish child, and you're asking according to his will in order that he may be glorified. And church, do we need discernment in in making these types of decisions? Of course we do, right? Of course we do. And church, for the sake of time, this is really a, a monumental topic, 
But for the sake of time, as I close, I just again want to remind you of the magnitude of this golden rule. Like Alfred Edersheim said, it is the nearest approach to absolute love of which human nature is capable. And I want to leave you with three Ps as takeaways from this message. If you're asking why this is so important for Christian living, it is because, number one, his purpose demands it. His purpose demands it. Upon this purpose and principle hang all the law and the prophets. And these are the ethics and kingdom, and excuse me, these are the ethics of the kingdom of God. Number two, his promise frees us up to do it because he'll replenish everything that we do for others. And number three, he is our pattern. We follow his pattern and example for treating others because how can we say we are his children and then do less for others? If we follow his pattern, the sacrifices we make will leave a pleasant aroma to God. Amen. Church, can we receive God's word this morning? And I want to leave you with the, the same scripture from Ephesians chapter 5. It says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because Frontline Church, you are His dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered Himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God.